0: I love the song that we sang today which uh, talks about the fact that as we come before the Lord that we can bring with us all of our doubts and our fears. Do you you remember that that lyric in the song that we sang this morning? I think it was the first song that we sang. All my doubts and fears, they can all come too because they can't stay long when I'm here with you. What the song is declaring is that When we come to the Lord, we come sometimes with uncertainties and with fears, doubts, maybe some skepticism, and that Jesus can receive us even with those doubts and uncertainties and that he can answer those questions. You know what a skeptic is, don't you? A skeptic is a person who is more inclined toward doubt than they are toward confidence, or faith. A skeptic is a person who, when they hear something, they don't automatically believe it, but they automatically question it. Now, it doesn't mean that a skeptic can never be a believer or that a skeptic does not become a believer, certainly, but it means that they simply are more inclined to have questions or to doubt. Sometimes skeptics can be cynical. Not every skeptic is a cynic, but sometimes skepticism can become cynicism. Sometimes skeptics are called doubters, and that's a, that's a pretty good definition, I think, or questioners. Now, most of the time, I'm of the persuasion that most of the time skeptics are more made than they are born. Let me tell you what I mean by that. I, I know some people, just because of the way that we're wired, some people are a little more skeptical than others, and some are more, you know, kind of early adopters or optimistic. But, but I believe that m- for the most part, skepticism isn't a result of, of internal wiring. I think it's a result of experience. I think what happens very often is people have negative experiences or they're disappointed or they have hurts or wounds in some way, and those past negative experiences make them skeptical going forward. Let me give you an example of what I mean. A child who is abused by an adult will, as a result of that past abuse, mistrust other adults who are in their life. Because they had this experience, they will be skeptical of any unknown adult that would approach them. That's a, that's a natural result of their negative experience or their suffering in the past. Um, a wife who is betrayed, whose, whose trust is betrayed by her husband, even if he says, I'm sorry, and, he, and, and, they're, and they're able to reconcile, going forward, she will naturally doubt the word of her husband. Until that trust is reestablished or rebuilt, that past negative experience is going to cause her to mistrust her husband going forward. I, and these examples could go on forever, right? I mean, you, this happens in all sorts of situations and with all kinds of people and institutions and organizations all the time. But what about God? What would make a person skeptical or a doubter when it comes to what is true about God or about Christ? What would cause a person to be an agnostic or even more so to be an atheist? I just, I cannot or I do not believe in God. I think, in the same way, a lot of that is produced by past hurts or disappointments or wounds or suffering or whatever. Because what happens is people will endure some some great difficulty. They'll then project the blame for that on God, and they will doubt the, the truthfulness or the love or even the existence of God because they feel like God let them down in the past. You've heard people say this. Maybe you've said this before. If there was a loving God, X, Y, or Z would have never happened, right? Right? How could a loving God let this thing that I experienced? How could they let that? How could a loving God let that happen? Sometimes people are skeptical of God because of because of hurts in their lives. Is that fair? Did God do that to them? No. But but nonetheless, that is often a motivation of their skepticism. Now, sometimes it's not so much about disappointments or hurts, but it's about environment. Maybe a person was raised in a completely unbelieving home, Uh, maybe even in a home that was antagonistic uh, towards matters of faith. And so everything they ever heard from their parents is, God is not real, and the Bible is not to be believed, and Jesus uh, was just a man, and and so everything they've ever been taught by their parents caused them to disbelieve uh, matters of faith or maybe they went and received a completely secular education. And so everything that has formed their their point of view, everything that's formed their, their, uh, their worldview, everything that's formed their intellectual makeup has all been from a completely humanistic point of view, and there's been no room left in their life at all for God. And so they are skeptics. They hear the Bible, they hear about the Lord, they hear about Jesus. And they're just skeptical of that, or they just don't believe that. Now, one other thing that happens as well, that is that sometimes uh, skepticism toward the Lord is more self-doubt than it is God-doubt. And what I mean by that is that people will say things like, well, if God really does exist, he couldn't love me because I'm unlovable. I mean, really, I've just gone too far. I've done too much. There's, I'm too messed up if God is real, I can never know him because I'm, I'm too messed up. Or they might say, if Jesus really is the savior, if he really does forgive people of their sins, I can never be forgiven because my sins are far too great. He would never forgive me. All of these factors play into doubts and questions and skepticisms and, and sometimes cynicism that we bring to issues of faith. And I just want to say to you on all of our campuses today, If you've arrived at church at Brookstone this morning and you brought with you some doubts or you brought with you some skepticism about the claims of the Bible or the claims of Christ or even the existence of God himself, I want to say welcome to church. I am so glad that you've come today. And I want to tell you that Jesus welcomes you and that he can handle your questions. I want you to know this. Now, the reason that I know that Jesus can handle it is because as you read through the Gospels, you find that Jesus was always encountering people through his lifetime who were doubters. They were skeptics. They were even cynics and disbelievers. And in every case, Jesus met them at the point of their questions, and he helped them to believe. Last week, we were in John chapter number one. This week, we're in John chapter five. And in the intervening chapters, just of the gospel of John, just these three or four chapters in John, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, first part of chapter five, in just these few pages, you will find at least five different interactions that Jesus had with people where they had been hurt or they had had some disappointment or they had been let down in some way. They were grieving some loss. And they came to Jesus with their doubts. They came to him with their skepticism. And in every case, he met them there and helped them to believe. Uh, In John chapter 2, as an example, Jesus is at a wedding in Cana in the Galilee region. And they have a a problem arise during the wedding feast. Now, I need to tell you that a wedding feast in the Holy Land, even until today, and certainly in Jesus' day, these were not you know two or three hour long events or even a day long event these feasts and parties went on for days and days sometimes more than a week and they still do today function that way and they would be great feasts where the community would come and the families would come and distant family members would come from all over the region and it was a huge deal well in John chapter 2 the father of the bride is is at a uh, a point of great disappointment and great frustration with himself because he failed to plan properly, and they ran out of wine. And you just can't run out of of wine at one of these marriage feasts. And so this problem is brought to Jesus. They have no wine. Now, really, the problem was not the wine so much, but what you learn from that is that wine in the Bible is a type of joy. And so what the problem is, is they've lost their joy. In the midst of this celebration where there ought to be such joy, suddenly they have no wine joy. In John chapter 3, you know the story of Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and when he came to Jesus, he says uh, to him, there's something about you. I know the things that you do. It seems you've come from God, but I just don't understand you. Jesus talks to him about being born again and talks to him about spiritual truth. And here's Nicodemus' question. He says, but how can these things be? Do you hear his skepticism, his doubts? How could that even be the case? Maybe that's where you are. Maybe you hear the claims of Christ. You hear the message of the church. You read the Bible and you say, I don't get it. How could that really be true? That's where Nicodemus was. In John chapter four, Jesus meets a woman at the well of Samaria, the well of Sychar. She's a Samaritan woman and she is crushed in her life. Her life is so broken. And it's been broken by the men in her life. She's had five husbands. She's now in a relationship with a man, and she has been crushed by these men. And she comes to Jesus, or she meets Jesus at the well, and he offers her living water to give her a brand new life, a fresh drink into a new life. And do you know what she says? Do you remember what she says? She says, You don't have anything to draw with. (laughs) Like, we're at the well. How are you going to get me water out of the well? You don't even have a bucket. What she's saying to Jesus is, you don't have what I need. You don't know me. You don't know my problems and my struggles. You don't have what I need. Later on in John chapter number four, Jesus heals the son of a nobleman. He's a guy that works for the king. And this guy comes to Jesus and he says, my son is dying. Will you save him, rescue him or heal him? And Jesus begins to talk to him about believing without seeing the signs. And you won't believe unless you see the signs. And the man is just like, my son is dying. Do something. I need you. I, I don't have any hope. My son is dying. And Jesus essentially says, he's healed. I just did it with my word. And the guy leaves doubting. And yet along the way, as he's headed home, he meets his servants. And they say, your son is alive. He has been healed. All of these are people in, in, uh, in moments of problems And they have doubts about the ability of Jesus to solve their problem or the willingness of Jesus to meet their need. The last one I would bring to your attention is in chapter number 5. And this is the story of the healing of a man by the pool of Bethesda just inside the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem. And Jesus says to him in John chapter 5, Do you want to be healed? And do you know what he replies? He says, I don't have anybody to heal me, to help me. There's nobody that, I can't heal myself, and I don't have anybody to help me. And so Jesus, just like he did in chapter 2, just like he did in chapter 3, chapter 4, twice, chapter 5, he meets all of these, including this crippled man, at the point of his doubts and his cynicism and his skepticism, and he turns him into a believer. Now it's this healing in chapter number 5 that gets Jesus into some trouble with the Jewish people, or with the Pharisees. Let me show it to you. Chapter 5, look at verse number 16. It says, And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus. Now, it's not just the Jewish people in general. not the general Jewish population. These are the Pharisees. The Pharisees then persecuted Jesus and sought to slay him, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Forget the fact that the guy who had been laying by the pool for years crippled is now walking. They're angry that Jesus violated their Sabbath rules. He worked by healing this guy on the Sabbath day. And you know what Jesus says to him? You know what Jesus' response to him is, or to them? He says, look at it, verse number 16, 17. He says, my father is working all the time. He works until now, and I work with him. They said, dude, you just worked on the Sabbath day. We're going to kill you. And he said, but my father's talking about God. My father, he works on the Sabbath day, and I'm just working with him. And then their heads exploded. Because what Jesus did when he said, my father is working and I'm working with him, he made himself equal with God. In fact, look at the next verse. This is what they accuse him of. Verse 18, therefore, the Jews sought the more to kill him Because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but now he said that God was his father, making him equal with God. They are so full of rage. They're so angry that Jesus would break the Sabbath rules and that he would claim to be God. They're, They're an angry mob and they want to have him killed. And so beginning in verse 17, verse 19, down through verse number 30, you have Jesus very calm response to this angry mob and his clear reaffirmation of his divinity. Now listen, if you've got, if y'all are listening, y'all campuses shout amen. If you've got an angry mob ready to kill you because you just claim to be God, do you think you would have said, if you really weren't God, would you have said, uh, I, y'all misunderstood me. Let, me let me rephrase what I said and you would try to back your way out of that trouble can I tell you what Jesus does beginning in verse 17 and following he doubles down he says to them I am verse 17 my father and I we work together verse 19 verily I say unto you that the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do and everything that I do or everything that the father does these are the things that I do They said, you worked on the Sabbath, and he said, well, let me just tell you, God is working, and he's my father, and I'm working with him. And you can see their temperature rising. And then in verse number 20, he says, and by the way, if that's not enough, let me tell you, the father loves me, and I love the son. The father and I work together, and the father and I love one another. Verse number 21 for as the Father raises up the dead and gives them life, quickens them, even so the Son quickens whom He will. In verse 21, He says, "The Father and I, we don't only work together, we don't only love each other, we raise the dead, dead legs in this case, or dead people. Doesn't really matter." He says, "The Father and I give life." And you can just do. Y'all feel the tension rising in this text. They are so ready now to to. Uh, have him killed. So he goes on in verse number 23 to say, all men should honor the son, even as they honor the father. He that does not revere or receive the son does not receive or revere or honor the father which sent him. He goes on to say, you can't receive God without receiving me. And if you don't receive me, you're rejecting God the father. And Then in verse number 25 and 26, he says, And verily I say unto you that the hour is coming now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. For as the Father has life in himself, he has given to the Son that he would have life in himself. Now watch what Jesus is doing in this response to these Jewish Pharisees who are so angry that he's claimed to be God. He doubles down, I in fact am working with the Father. The Father and I love one another. The Father and I um, raise up the dead. The Father and I must be received or rejected together. And by the way, the Father and I one day will bring this age to a close, and we will call the dead, and they will stand before us in judgment." These claims are Christ's unequivocal claim to divinity. But then I want you to look at verse 31. It's an important verse in this passage. He says in verse 31, But if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. What did Jesus just say? Did he say, I'm not telling the truth? Is that what he means? No, not at all. What Jesus is doing in verse 31 is he is quoting the Jewish legal code from Deuteronomy chapter 19, which says that every matter must be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. The Jewish law said you cannot establish anything to be true on the testimony of only one person. One person does not constitute a true statement, one testimony. So there must be at least two or three. And so Jesus says in verse 31, but look, I mean, like the father and I, we work together and the father and I, we love each other and the father and I, we raise the dead and the father and I, we've got to be received or rejected together. And the father and I, we're going to bring this thing to judgment one day. But look, I know that I'm the only one saying it. And if I'm the only one saying it, that's not good enough. I get it. So let me bring you some more witnesses. And beginning in verse number 31, 32, Jesus draws us into a courtroom where he calls four more witnesses who will testify and by their testimony will affirm that Jesus is in fact God in the flesh. And I want to read this to you beginning in verse number 31 where Jesus begins to call these witnesses. All right, you ready? Follow along. Verse 31. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses is of me is true. Verse 33, you sent unto John, that's John the Baptist, and he bear witness unto the truth. Verse 34, now I don't receive testimony from man. I don't need to be affirmed by man is what he's saying, but I'm saying these things so that you might be saved. He, John, was a burning light and a shining light, and you were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. Verse 36, But I have a greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father has given me to do, to finish, these same works that I do, they bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Verse 37, And the Father himself... Which has sent me, he has borne witness of me. But you have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. And you have not his word abiding in you. For whom he has sent, you have not believed. Verse 39 Search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life. And they, the scriptures, are they which testify. Of me. Skip over to verse forty six at the end of the chapter. Verse forty six for had you believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he Moses wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how then shall you believe my Words. All right, are y'all tracking with me? Here's what, Paul, here's what Jesus says. He says, I am God. We are working together. We love one another. We raise the dead. We must be received or rejected together, and uh, we will bring all of the earth and all of the age to conclusion one day. But I know my word is not enough, so let me give you four more testimonies and, or witnesses, and he brings them forth. Here's the first one. Write it down. The, the, the uh, first witness or witness number one that Jesus calls is John the Baptist. It's almost as if I can hear Jesus saying, please the court, I'd like to call to the stand, John the Baptist. And he begins to talk about the ministry and the message of this man, John. He says in verse number 33, you sent unto John and he bear witness of the truth. Now, you remember the ministry of John the Baptist, right? If you were here back in the summer, we studied the prophets, and John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And we talked about John, how that he came out of the wilderness dressed in camel's hair and eating locusts and wild honey. He was kind of a wild man, and he was preaching this message in the wilderness, the message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was saying, repent, the Messiah is here. And John's message was widely and wildly received. People were overwhelmingly responsive to what John said. The Bible says they came from everywhere to hear him preach, to be baptized by him, to accept his message and and to be baptized under repentance. I mean, they came from from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. They, They came from across in the country of Jordan. They came from around Syria and Lebanon today, from the north. They came from all over the place to hear this man preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it wasn't just the common, everyday people who came to hear John preach. Do you know that the Pharisees believed the message of John? Look at it, verse number 35. This is what Jesus says. He was a burning and a shining light, and you, the Pharisees, you were willing for a season to rejoice in his message or his light. He says that the Pharisees accepted John's message as true in the beginning. And what was John's message? Turn back two pages to chapter one. John chapter one records the message of John the Baptist. It tells us that John said five things about Jesus Number one, he tells them in, that, in, the, in John chapter number one that Jesus is worthy of our humble worship. Verses 26, I'm in chapter one, verse 26 and 27. John said to them, well, look at verse 27. He it is who come after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it, I am not worthy to unloose. That's what John said about Jesus. John said Jesus is God, and because he is, I don't even deserve to kneel at his feet and untie his sandals. John said about Jesus in verse number 29, he's the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. That's his message. In chapter 1, verse 30, John said that Jesus is eternal, that he preexisted John. We know that John was born first, but John said Jesus was before he was, that he was eternal. In verse number 33, he says that Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. In chapter 1, verse 34, he says plainly, and I saw him bear record. These are the words of John the Baptist. I saw him bear record that this is the Son of God. Jesus says to these Jewish Pharisees, John the Baptist is a witness to me. And in chapter 5, verse number 35, he plainly says, and you sought him out and you rejoiced in his message. Listen carefully. The Pharisees loved the message of John and they received it until they didn't. And they stopped receiving it when it became clear to them that Jesus was a threat to their agenda. And I love you enough to tell you this is some of you. You love Jesus, meek and mild, you love the Sunday school Jesus that sits on a rock, and the little children come to him. You love the fish and bread multiplying Jesus. You'll accept that. But the moment he looks at you and says, repent of your sin, you don't want to hear that. The minute he calls you to turn from your sin and follow him with your whole life, you're saying, no, 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 I can't accept that. I want you to know that you're having the same problem the Pharisees had, that you believe in Jesus A Jesus that doesn't call you to repentance and surrender. And yet Jesus said to them, John is one you should listen to. He is my witness. The second witness, John chapter number five, the second witness uh, that Jesus brings up is the miraculous ministry. Witness number two is the miraculous ministry of Jesus. You see this in verse 36, after talking about John the Baptist, then in verse 36, he says, but I have a greater witness than that of John. John was a great witness. He gave great testimony. But Jesus says, I've got a greater witness. Jesus says, as wonderful, as convincing as were the words of John, the works of Jesus are more convincing. He says, the works that I do, they testify that the Father has sent me. The miracles that Jesus did, they testify to his divinity. You know, the Bible records, the Gospels alone record about 40 different miracles that Jesus performed during his lifetime. Not fulfilled prophecies, many more fulfilled prophecies by his life, but just actual miracles that Christ performed in the lives of other people. About 40 of those are recorded in the gospels. Some of them are spiritual miracles. Uh, the miracle of giving new, uh, uh, someone new birth. The miracle of casting out demons, uh, the miracle of knowing what someone is thinking in their heart, even when they don't speak it with their mouth. These are things that reveal the, the spiritual power and the knowledge of Jesus. And then, of course, mostly what you see in the New Testament are physical miracles. Jesus healed the lepers. He opened blind eyes. He opened deaf ears. He he raised up crippled people and healed their limbs. He he, uh, healed diseased people. He even raised people from the dead. They demonstrate his power. Then Jesus uh, worked miracles of provision. Uh, We saw Jesus in John chapter 2. I talked about it a moment ago. Turning water into wine at the marriage of Cana in Galilee. Providing for them what they didn't have. John chapter 6 records Jesus multiplying one little boy's lunch of fish and loaves to feed upwards of 15,000 people. The multiplication of the fish and the bread. That miraculous provision that he provides, that he gives. And then the Bible tells us that Jesus performed miracles that defied the laws of nature. That is that he had power over nature. Jesus walked on the water and the water held him up. The Bible tells us that Jesus would speak the word and mighty storms would calm and the winds would cease and the waves would lay down. What Jesus is saying is that the words of John are powerful, but the miracles that I've done are more powerful. And that those miracles testify of me. In fact, in John chapter 10, listen to what Jesus says in verse 37. He says, if I do not do the works, if I don't do the miracles of my father then don't believe me if you don't see anything powerful in my life don't believe me verse 38 but if i do them if i do the miracles even though you may not believe me believe the miracles believe the works that you may know and believe that the father is in me and i in him do you understand loved ones jesus is saying i am god in the flesh but don't take my word for it. Take the word of John. Take the word of the miracles. If y'all doing okay, shout amen. amen. All right, two more witnesses that he gives. Number three, witness number three is the Father himself. God the Father is witness number three. You see this in verse 37 and 38. And the Father himself, which hath sent me, he has borne witness of me. You have neither, uh, however, you have neither heard his voice at any time or seen his form, and you have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent, you do not believe. In these verses, Jesus adds to his resume of witnesses, God himself. He says, God has testified of me. Now, where, where did God the Father testify publicly of the identity of Jesus? Jesus might have been saying, well, you've seen everything that I've done. You've heard all the words that I've spoken. It's obvious that God is revealing himself th- through me, that, that, uh, that I am the, the um, express image of him. I am God in the flesh. It's obvious you should see that. That might be what he's saying, but I don't think so. I think what he is saying is a reference to the moment of his baptism. Do you remember what happened when Jesus was baptized? Matthew chapter 3 records it, that when he was baptized, as he came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended upon him, and a voice was heard from heaven which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. God spoke from heaven and affirmed the divinity, the deity of Jesus. And the Pharisees in John chapter 5 had heard it. They were there. Or at least the people that they had sent were there. They knew that God had spoken and testified that Jesus was divine. And yet Jesus says, But you will not receive his word. You don't have it in you because you are willing to reject me. And maybe that's where you are. Maybe you're in a place where God has been working in your heart. God, maybe for the last days or weeks or months or for some years. God has been giving you faith. He's been convincing you of the claims of Christ. There's been a longing in your heart to come to faith, and yet you've positioned yourself as an unbeliever. You've said, nah, I'm not going to believe that, and I'm not going to surrender my life. And so you've pushed it off. God is revealing it, but you're not willing to receive it. By the way, that's the way it was in my life the night I came to Christ. Now, it wasn't a long time, it was only moments. But it was, a, it was a moment when God was drawing me by, by His Spirit, and there was a moment when I went, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to trust Jesus. And then finally I relented. And I did. Maybe this is you. God is convincing you. Maybe through John's message. Maybe through the testimony of the miracles. But in your heart God is working. And I want to challenge you just to believe. Just to trust. There's one final witness to close and That's the witness that Jesus refers to beginning in verse number 39, which is the Scripture. Witness number four is the Scripture, the Bible. He says in verse number 39, "...search the Scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life. And they, the Scriptures, are they which testify of me." Jesus says the Bible is a book about me. In fact, look at verse 46. For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he, Moses, wrote of me. Now, by the way, when Jesus said, the Bible is a book about me, search the scriptures, you'll see me there. What Bible did they have? Did they have the book of Colossians? No. Did they have Revelation? No. The only Bible they had was the Old Testament, primarily the Torah, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's what he's talking about primarily. Moses wrote of me. Well, where did I've read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I don't find the name Jesus there anywhere. Where does Jesus, or where does Moses talk about Jesus? All through. In, in, in Genesis chapter 1, when God says, let us Make man in our own image. Let us create the heavens and the earth. He's referring to the divine trinity. He's including Jesus in that. In John chapter 3, when he says there will be a seed of a woman which will crush the head of the serpent and deliver my people, he's talking about Jesus. When when, um, Noah builds an ark to the saving of his house in Genesis chapter number 6, Jesus is pictured in the ark. What Jesus says is that everywhere you read in the scriptures, it is a book about me. And I want you to know that the very scriptures that these Pharisees should have believed in order to put their faith in Jesus, they did not believe even though it told them about Jesus. Maybe you've read the Bible for years. Maybe you've grown up knowing all the stories in the Bible, and yet you've never believed in Jesus because you've never allowed uh, yourself to see Jesus in the text. You know, the Bible is a book about Jesus, and I thought it would be helpful at the end of our time together today just to remind you that no matter where you open your Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, prophecy, poetry, gospels, epistles, it doesn't matter, everywhere you open your Bible, you are reading a book that reveals to you The person of Jesus. If you will but look for him, you will see him. I just mentioned to you that in Genesis, he is the creator and the promised redeemer. But did you know that Jesus is found in the book of Exodus as well? In the book of Exodus, Jesus is the Passover lamb whose blood protects us from the judgment of God. In the book of Leviticus, Jesus is our high priest, interceding and mediating on our behalf. In Numbers, he's water pouring forth from the rock in the desert. In Deuteronomy, Jesus becomes a curse for us and carries our sin far away. In Joshua, Jesus is the captain of the army of the Lord. In Judges, Jesus delivers us from injustice. In Ruth, he's our kinsman redeemer. In 1 Samuel, Jesus is the anointed king who defeats our enemies. And in 2 Samuel, he is the king of grace and of love. In 1 Kings, Jesus is the ruler greater than Solomon. And in 2 Kings, he is the powerful prophet. In 1 Chronicles, he's the son of David that's coming to rule. And in 2 Chronicles, Jesus is the king who reigns eternally. In the book of Ezra, Jesus is the priest who restores our worship. And in the book of Nehemiah, Jesus is the rebuilder of our lives. In Esther, Jesus is our protector and our guard. And in Job, he is the eternal sovereign Lord. In the book of Psalms, Jesus is our song in the morning. And in Proverbs, he's our wisdom for living. In Ecclesiastes, Jesus gives us meaning for life, and in the Song of Solomon, he is our bridegroom coming for his bride. In Isaiah, Jesus is that wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Are y'all tracking with me? In Jeremiah, he is the righteous branch. In Lamentations, he's the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, Jesus is the son of man. In Daniel, he's the fourth man in the fire with us when we suffer. In Hosea, he is our faithful husband who loves us even in our unfaithfulness. In Joel, Jesus is the one sending to us his Holy Spirit. In Amos, he delivers justice to the oppressed. In Obadiah, Jesus is the judge of those who do evil. In Jonah, Jesus is the great missionary. In Micah, he casts our sin into the sea of forgetfulness. In Nahum, he's our avenger. In Habakkuk, he crushes injustice. In Zephaniah, he's the warrior who saves. And in Haggai, he's the restorer of our worship. In Zechariah, Jesus is the savior with the nail prints in his hands. In Malachi he is the sum of righteousness, son of righteousness with healing in his wings. No matter where you read Genesis to Malachi in the Old Testament, Jesus is present. In Matthew in the New Testament, he's the king of Israel, in Mark he's the servant king. In Luke, Jesus is Christ the Lord. In John, he's the word who became flesh. In the book of Acts, Jesus is the indwelling Holy Spirit. In Romans, he is our justification. In 1 Corinthians, he is the one that takes the sting away from death. And in 2 Corinthians, he is the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. In Galatians, he fulfills the law for us. In Ephesians, he's the head of the church. In Philippians, he's our everlasting joy. In Colossians, he holds all things together. I don't think y'all getting this. In 1 Thessalonians, he's our comforter. In 2 Thessalonians, he's our coming king. In 1 Timothy, he mediates between us and God. And in 2 Timothy, he is that one who descended from David and who is raised from the dead. In Titus, Jesus is our blessed hope. And in Philemon, he is our Redeemer and our friend. In Hebrews, he's our high priest. In James, Jesus is our healer. In First Peter, he is our living hope. In Second Peter, he's the one who is not willing that any should perish. In 1 John, he's the light. In 2 John, he is our love. In 3 John, he is the source of all truth. In Jude, Jesus is the one coming with 10,000s of his saints. And in Revelation, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the King of kings and the Lord of lords coming in power <laughs> and great glory. Jesus is in the book. And he is in the book no matter where you read. And I want to say to you that if you've come here today with your doubts and your skepticisms, with your cynicism maybe, and with your unbelief, I want to challenge you to believe the word, the claim of Jesus. And if you won't believe Jesus, believe John the Baptist. And if you won't believe John the Baptist, believe the works, the miracles that Jesus performed. And if the miracles won't convince you, listen to the Father as he speaks to your heart. And if none of those things convince you, then believe the Bible, the Word of God. But if you won't believe Jesus, and you won't believe John, And if you refuse to acknowledge the miracles and if you reject the drawing of the Father and if you refuse to believe the Word of God, then like every other unbeliever, you will be lost for eternity. Because heaven is for believers. So I urge you on all of our campuses, cast off your doubt. Cast away your skepticism. Throw off your unbelief. And with everything that you have, jump by faith and trust Jesus alone to be your Savior. And he will be for all eternity.